Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas presents Ecological Democracy, Looking Back, Looking Forward, in partnership with the University of Canberra and Stockholm University, with speakers Karen Backstrand, Robin Ecclesley, John Dryzek, and Chair David Schlossberg. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics here uh, in the Department of Government and International Relations. I'm also the co-director of the Sydney uh, Environment Institute, which is a co-sponsor of this event. I want to start as I normally would um, by acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We have to acknowledge that this land has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and the environment, between human and non-human <coughs> communities for tens of thousands of years. Uh, and as we think in particular about how we might respond to environmental impacts and changes we face in the coming years, we should acknowledge and consult this traditional knowledge built over millennia that has adapted to environmental change that has proven resilient. So I said, as I said, I'm the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Um, we're a multidisciplinary research institute uh, focused on mostly the environmental humanities and social sciences that we cross uh, just about every faculty on campus. Uh, focusing on specific things like climate change adaptation and transition, food systems, uh, climate impacts on oceans and reefs, uh, and more. Um, I do want to thank a number of people at the SEI that have made this event possible. Um, as is usually the case, there's a lot going on behind the curtain, um, and those are the folks that make things run. So thanks, as always, to Michelle St. Anne, um, who now officially, I guess is the first time I'm saying this uh, out loud in public, uh, has the new title of Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute. So thanks to Michelle for all the work that goes into organizing, not just tonight, but two full days uh, of a research workshop on ecological democracy. Um, thanks also to Meredith Hall, um, who runs Sydney Ideas, and we've been working with her uh, for years. She loves when we fill rooms like this, so thanks for showing up. Uh, and then thanks, of course, to our other outstanding staff, uh, Eloise, Anastasia, um, and as always, thanks to the guidance and mentorship of my co-director at the Sydney Environment Institute, Ian McCalman. This is not only our event, though. One of the nice things about uh, these two days is that it's an important collaboration between the SEI, the University of Stockholm, and the University of Canberra. It's also affiliated with the Earth Systems Governance Project. So I want to thank Jonathan Pickering of the University of Canberra, who's here somewhere, um, as well um, as the Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance um, Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance that John Dreisick uh, runs um, for all of uh, the work, getting the, uh, getting the workshop together, uh, shuttling people around. And then finally, thanks also to Karen Backstrand of the University of Stockholm um, for her participation in, actually, I think it was Karen's idea uh, to have this collaborative workshop, so thanks to her. So earlier today and all day uh, tomorrow, a number of us are sitting around talking about ecological democracy, presenting new work on the topic, thinking about the intersection of democratic thinking, democratic practice, and environmental sustainability. So, so far, we've had an incredible range uh, of talks uh, from the role of care and empathy to the problem of time and urgency, uh, from ecological boundaries uh, to koala preserves, uh, from rainmaking in Nigeria to designing for transition in the US. And for me, what's striking 
um, about today and rewarding really is, um, and I'm sure it'll continue tomorrow, I should say, um, is the way that there are a variety of conceptual approaches. We have people from uh, a number of areas bringing um, the ideas, um, that really sort of dealing with this intersection of democratic engagement uh, and environmental sustainability and a lot of new and fresh ways of thinking about that intersection. But ecological democracy is not a new idea. A number of folks have been talking about that intersection uh, going on 30 years now, well, longer for some. Um, so tonight is in part about thinking back to some of the original ideas of this contemporary field of thought, luckily with some of the people who helped uh, to originate that. Um, but then crucially and along with, um, with you all and some of our participants, we also want to look forward um, to some original ways of thinking uh, about ecological democracy. Most of the work that we're doing here is hopeful uh, and creative. One of my favorite questions of the day so far was the question, what is the politics of your optimism? Um, but of course, it's not all that optimistic out there. Uh, as good as it was, and I only realized this at 5.30 this afternoon, um, to sit in a room with uh, creative and engaging thinkers for a whole day and not look once at Donald Trump's tweets. I think that's the first, <laughs> the first day in a month that I haven't done that. Um, we do have some major epic changing realities out there to deal with. So earlier we were thinking another sort of subtitle for this would have been ecological democracy in the Anthropocene. But given the anti-democratic and authoritarian turn we're experiencing politically, um, it's probably better to suggest, to suggest that um, one of the main questions of the night is the potential for ecological democracy in the Trumpocene, which is a word that's been going around in Sydney for the last uh, couple of weeks. So the format here is going to be pretty conversational. We'll have three speakers uh, give a fairly short introduction to um, the issues and themes of their particular concern. We'll have a bit of question and answer and back and forth up here on the panel, um, and then we'll open it uh, all up to you. So what I want to do now is introduce our very distinguished panel in the order that I actually met them. Um, but not in the order um, that they're going to speak. So John Dreisick is uh, ARC Laureate Fellow and Professor uh, and the Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. John is well known for his work in deliberative democracy and environmental politics and also the intersection uh, of the two. John was also my own entree um, into studying ecological democracy as he was my PhD supervisor a long time ago. Um, I had a really weird undergraduate education coming as I did from the University of California at Santa Cruz. I spent four years studying both political theory and social psychology. And my interest was at that point about the experience of doing democracy, what it felt like, what it meant to engage um, with others. And one of the areas where that was growing in practice was the radical environmental movement. So I came into environmentalism after this interest in um, the idea and the practice of democracy. The problem for someone who was looking to do a PhD is that no one in politics departments was really writing about radical movements and the experience uh, uh, of environmental democracy until John's Rational Ecology was published in 1987, so I'm, I'm dating myself here. Um, that was 30 years ago that John published uh, Rational Ecology. Um, and that 
was to me an inspiring book. It's one of the reasons I went to study with John and it led me to my own last 30 years uh, of work at the intersection of environmentalism, democracy, um, and justice in both theory uh, and action. Of course, that was only the beginning of John's own work in ecological democracy. He was the first, I mean, this is the other major thing for me. I was talking with someone else about this earlier. Um, one of the first people um, to think about including the non-human realm in democratic practice um, through deliberative democracy, that nature is screaming at us, communicating with us all the time if we will only listen, include, and engage it in democratic practice. Second, um, to my right is Robin Eckersley, professor uh, in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Um, and um, even before, I said this before, even before I started my PhD, so I spent a summer at Murray Bookchin's Institute for Social Ecology in rural Vermont, and there are lots of stories um, there that we won't get into at the moment. Um, but um, Bookchin was one of the intellectual leaders of eco-anarchism and was trying to pull together a community of students and scholars who were doing not just theory but practice, which is why I was interested. But at the time, and this was 1988, he was in a pitched battle between deep, between, and sort of created this conflict between deep ecology and social ecology uh, a long time ago. And he was a real ass about it. And it was a really obnoxious uh, sort of engagement. And it was, it was this continuing thing where you had to be on one side or the other. Um, and then I read this piece um, by a person I'd never heard of before, Robin Eckersley, entitled Stop the Polemic, I Want to Get Off, um, which was all about the important relationships um, between deep uh, and social ecology. So I was already drawn to Robin. And then in 1992, she published what is still um, the definitive intersection of environmental and political thought, uh, the now classic book, Environmentalism and Political Theory, which he refuses to do a new edition of. Um, so it's a brilliant survey of uh, a range of ways of thinking about the intersection of these two fields. And it brought an originality. And it also brought some hope to a young political theorist that this might actually be a real and worthwhile field of study. So I had two people as mentors saying, yes, you can do uh, ecological democracy and environmental political thought. Since then, of course, Robin's written extensively uh, on the greening of the state, on the relationship between environment and political economy, and most recently on political leadership uh, in climate politics and uh, on climate justice. And our third speaker is Karen Backstrand, professor of environmental social science at the Department of Political Science at the University of Stockholm and a senior faculty member uh, on the Earth Systems Governance Project. John is as well, right? Yeah. Um, which is now part of the larger Future Earth program. And there's uh, an Australian offshoot of Future Earth um, uh, building up here. So Karen's work is at the intersection of citizen science, citizen knowledge, sustainability, and global environmental politics, and more generally about large-scale forms of democratic governance. So how might we govern global environmental systems? What's the role of science and democracy in environmental decision-making? And I only met Karen, I think I only met her at the Earth Systems Governance Conference about a year and a half ago. Um, but Karen, at that point, said, we've got to do this with Jonathan, brought together a whole group of people interested at this intersection of governance uh, environment of democracy, uh, and here we are. Um, so uh, much appreciation uh, to Karen for that. 
So the order of um, speaking, however, is going to be dictated pretty much by the sort of back and forward, looking back and looking forward. So we'll start with Robin, uh, we'll go on to John, and then we'll go to Karen. So as I said, we'll have about 15 <coughs> minutes each, uh, and then we'll have a little Q&A up here. We'll do a little bit more probing on some of the ideas that people bring up, and then we'll open it up to all of you. It is about democratic engagement, after all. Robin. Thank you very much, David. I'm going to be spending a little bit more time looking back rather than looking forward, and I, I want to give some of you who may not have in, had any contact before with the idea of ecological democracy a little bit of a prep, as it, as it were. Now, the title of the conference that we're attending is called um, Ecology, Ecological Democracy, Always Greener on the Other Side. And that suggests that a complete coupling of ecological rationality or ecological sustainability and democracy can only be found in some greener place that is really no place, i.e. a utopia. Or we might just think, it a, think of it instead as something that lies on the other side of liberal democracy as we know it, which is how I'd like to present the argument. Um, there's, it's often thought of that we're seeking ecological sustainability as an end, democracy as an open-ended means, so it cannot guarantee any particular ends if it's going to be responsive to pluralism. So there we have a dilemma. You either, when push comes to shove, are you a, a Democrat or an authoritarian Green? Well, that's a horrible choice, and I don't want anyone of us to have to think that way. So I'm going to look back and review how the environment movement and environmental critical theorists looking at this issue have responded to that so-called tension. And then I will look forward just a little bit and look at the Trumpocene, which I think we take as code for the confluence of post-truth politics, nationalist populism, political pol polarization, rising inequality, anti-elitism, economic dislocation, and the growing power of transnational capital. But I'm not gonna go into all of that in much detail. Okay, so looking back, I think the easiest way to get this across in the very brief time that I have is to think of uh, a spectrum with environmental democracy at one end, which I'll call the thin version, but not in a pejorative sense because it's practical. It's looking to try and make the most of the synergies between ecological sustainability, environmental citizenship and activism and democracy. And at the other end, a thick end, which is critical, so I'll call that ecological democracy, which is trying to provide an imminent ecological critique of liberal democracy as we know it, and show in many ways that the liberal democratic emperor has no clothes. Okay, so I'll get back to that. Now, the thin side looks for the synergies and I think in many ways, when the modern environment was born supposedly in the 1960s as a globally ubiquitous and persistent movement to try and highlight and politicize the increasing production and unfair distribution of ecological risks, it started to perform environmental democracy right there from the beginning. What it did was highlight the many ways in which environmental citizenship and activism was good for democracy by increasing the flow of information, enriching public debate, expanding the range of ideas before us, and also how democracy was abs absolutely essential for environmental activism and the movement, which could not exist without freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement, uh, access to the courts, and all of those things. So it played upon and exploited those synergies, and the environment movement was able to flourish, and democracy was stronger for it. And there have been achievements. We now see in uh, Principle 10 of the Rio Declaration, it calls for access to environmental information, public participation in decision-making and access to justice on environmental matters. We see it in a 
uh, transboundary convention, the Aarhus Convention, that gives the citizens of all the signatory countries in Europe the same environmental due process rights no matter where the environmental problem arises or is generated from and where it falls out. Okay? And we see it in the new Environmental Democracy Index, uh, which builds on, on these basic ideas. However, I think we have to admit that despite the achievements of the modern environment movement, they pale against the scale of the problem. And we're moving into serious, irreversible, and potentially catastrophic change. And I don't know who's going to talk about the Anthropocene, but this is a new geological epoch whereby humans have discovered that they are, we are geological agents. We know we've been changing environments ever since the year dot, but we've not really appreciated the fact that we've also been acting as geological agents, changing basic earth system processes in a way that could ultimately be inhospitable to human civilization. Okay, so if, we, if we've done all this without meaning to, unwittingly, unintentionally, what are the prospects of enacting this agency collectively and democratically? That's a really interesting question, which I'll put to a side, no, no, I'll maybe address it. What I'm gonna do now is talk about ecological democracy and what I said, this was much more critical and therefore less practical, but it did have a bit of a practical edge to it. And I'll run through six quick, quick arguments as to what they put on the table. First, it carried forward very familiar criticisms of liberal democracy in terms of the skewed distribution of wealth, um, how the politics of partisan mutual adjustment and bargaining tends to favour powerful economic concentrated interests over diffuse public interests. And of course, globalization has intensified these problems, but this was not new, but it was certainly part of the environment movement's argument or, and what ecological Democrats started with. But they went, wanted to show how liberal democracies cannot prevent irreversible change because according to a good liberal Democrat, the liberal democratic state is neutral. It does not seek to perfect society. It's anti-perfectionist. It just upholds civil and political rights, respects the irreducible nature of pluralism that we can't change and provides a neutral procedure by which we can govern ourselves through majoritarian rule. And any effort to try and steer things towards a particular end is just the latest road to serfdom. In fact, if you tried to guarantee sustainability, then that would, uh, that would actually undermine democracy. And so it leads us to believe. This idea that it's a swings and roundabout view of government. We can always vote out the mob we don't want and, and get a better chance next time, so we live with those outcomes, precisely because it's a provisional form of rule. But what that means, every win for the environment can always be undone. So that means you get this ratcheting effect against public environmental goods, against the interests of the global environment. And this happens because of the limited spatial and temporal horizons of liberal democracies and the way they work, fixed territories, short-term electoral um, cycles, combined with this politics of partisan mutual adjustment. So in a sense, the liberal democracies behave like capitalist firms. They externalise costs through space and time and very much caught up in the present. So this means they can perpetuate a kind of slow violence by pushing problems forward to communities future generations, non-human species, without any sense of attentiveness to their interests, any sense of accountability. 
And of course, you can see the arbitrariness of national borders from an ecological point of view. And as Elizabeth Ellis said, it can seem as if the legitimating structure of democratic rule was invented for another world in which small, isolated groups of people made choices together about the self-regarding actions they would take. This is not the world we live in. In fact, if you really think seriously about complex economic and ecological interdependence, you'll begin to slowly grasp the fact that the idea of self-rule is a fantasy. It can only ever be partial. Not quite. And this gives rise to the need to recognise the way in which we're inserted into larger processes, the way those larger processes act back on us, a kind of reflexivity that is very much lacking in liberal democracies. So a lot of ecological Democrats supported the all-affected principle that, in principle, all those affected by decisions, and particularly the most affected, should be entitled to have a say or otherwise be represented in decisions that generate risks. Without regard to arbitrary national borders. They didn't want to replace liberal democratic rule, they just wanted this as a supplementary principle to compensate for the slow violence that it was producing through time and space. So it came up with a bunch of um, institutional um, designs, proxy representation, entrenchment of the precautionary principles, uh, setting up commissions for the future, all sorts of things. Okay, so it doesn't mean that it's making liberal democracy, it's not rigging the system, it's just essentially trying to widen horizons of space, time, agency and community. And we can do that within existing liberal democratic structures by encouraging that greater reflexivity. Okay, now most, most of these ideas emerged in the 1990s during, just at the end of the Cold War, during a very triumphant in, um, liberalism, the ecological movements working behind the old Iron Curtain had been instrumental in the downfall of the, of the Soviet Union. It was the heyday of globalization debates in the 1990s, the rise of cosmopolitan values. So environmental political theorists were working on democracy during this period, and so they focused on attacking liberal democratic complacency. Donald Runciman wrote a book recently called The Confidence Trap, and he said liberal democracies have managed to muddle through many crises during the last century, but he worries that they don't have the capacity to muddle through crises this century because of two things, technological change, which is happening way too fast, and ecological change, which is taking place too slowly for liberal democracies to be able to challenge, uh, basically deal with. So back in the 1990s was a period of optimism. Nobody then could foresee how quickly the liberal dream might decay. What we are seeing, what we saw throughout the 20th century was a global spread of liberal democracy with waves of democratization, but at the same time it started to decay in the center. So what we've seen, we've seen no new democratization since the turn of the millennium. What we've seen is a backsliding, particularly in Central Europe, okay, and a decay on the inside. But of course, Trump is just the symptom, okay? He's just a symptom of a series of developments that have been happening for a very long time. Anyone studying political parties have known they've become increasingly hollowed out over time. Um, membership of parties is declining. Um, we see uh, all sorts of developments that lead to a sort of disillusionment, and that, that's, this is not a new story. It's been going on for a long time. And ironically, it was during the 1990s or rather probably the 1980s, with the intensification of globalization, what I call the global phase of the modernization process, the rise of neoliberalism that was helping to transform and change class structures, 
and increasingly distribute wealth and income upwards and financial, economic and ecological risks downwards. And we wonder why we have a large number of very disaffected and excluded people. And yet political parties started to look more and more like Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The range of policy choices were diminishing. And political and economic elites, elites seem to be working closer and closer. And let me give two quick examples of that. How is it that Donald Trump's press center secretary can tell people to go out and buy Ivanka's fashion label? This is, this is where economic interests and political power have become so converged. Or why is it that our treasurer can bring a lump of coal into parliament, courtesy of the Mineral, Councils of, Mineral Council of Australia, and, and not, see, not see that? Say, so this is safe. Don't be fearful of this lump of coal. And so what we also see is that Habermas wrote about the degradation of the public sphere, particularly in the second half of the century with the rise of infotainment and mass culture. What we're seeing now, of course, everyone knows this, the fragmentation of the public sphere and filter bubbles and increasing political polarisation. So the lesson from the history looking back is, whilst those of us who tried to thicken the way we think about liberal democracy to enlarge horizons weren't so much wanting to throw environmental democracy out the window, we took that as given. We can no longer take that for granted because liberal democracies don't have strong means of preventing their own destruction. The only thing standing between Trump and a further slide away from democracy is the US Constitution because all the other branches of the government are lined up in a conservative, um, in a conservative end of politics. So there are two quick options and this is where I'll finish. One's political. And I think here the environment movement needs to broaden its frame and link arms with democracy movements of all persuasions, um, building a much broader base that connects environmental and economic justice. I think that's absolutely crucial. And it can do this in all sorts of ways, but I don't have time to go in that. I've got 30 seconds. The second one is really to focus on reinvigorating the public sphere, because that is where it has to happen. That's where the change has to happen. This includes not just fact-checking and, uh, and answering um, untruthful claims. Let's forget this post-truth politics. It's untruthful politics, okay? We know there are lots of things that are, not, that are contestable, claims about the world, but some, you know, black is black and white is white. And when you hear someone saying black is white, that's not post-truth politics. It's simply untruthful politics. Um, and I think there's lots of ways in which you can um, innovate with new social media. New social me media is the new normal now. You can crowdsource, you can do all sorts of things to break one single, like the opaque algorithm of Google. Uh, you need to use lots of social media so no algorithm is dominating. If they'll never tell you what it is, then just don't let it rise too much, I guess is my answer. And I'll end on a note of optimism. When Ronald Reagan came to power and started busily winding back environmental laws in America, it woke the environment movement from its slumber and it radicalised it. Donald Trump is now in the White House. He is radicalising the global environment movement. Okay? This is a very positive sign. Thank you. Okay. Um, it was good to hear Robin uh, conclude on a, on a positive note. Um, I've been trying to figure out how I, how I could do the same, and maybe I'll try. Um, 
Okay, the particular approach I take towards democracy is, uh, called, is now called deliberative democracy, although it didn't have that name when I started out long ago, as David pointed out. Uh, um, actually, it's over, over 30 years ago. Um, deliberative democracy takes a particular approach to trying to establish uh, meaningful communication at the heart of democratic politics. Um, there's a bit more to it than that, but I won't go into the details. I would argue that when it comes to uh, ecological questions in particular, there are some, some qualities that deliberative democracy has, uh, which means that it can uh, be, uh, be, be turned in the interest of ecological democracy. Um, so for example, it's, uh, I would argue it's a good way of um, integrating diverse perspectives on complex issues. Uh, it can lead to the prioritization of general interests, such as uh, environmental conservation, the integrity of ecosystems, um, as opposed to um, uh, particular material interests. Uh, and but perhaps most importantly, from a, an ecological perspective, um, it can enlarge perspectives concerning those actually not physically present in deliberations. And that includes uh, future generations and includes, includes the non-human world. We may have to work hard at that, but we actually have a, a bit of evidence um, that uh, deliberative forums, especially deliberative forums involving ordinary citizens, um, can actually move in, in, in those sorts of directions. Um, as David pointed out um, in his introductory remarks, um, the non-human world is actually screaming at us. It's just that we're extremely bad at, at listening. Um, so it's important to uh, think about um, how, we can how we can better institutionalize listening, um, not just in deliberative process, but also um, in, in, in democracy more generally. What I'm going to do uh, is take a look at how this idea of a an ecological democracy with deliberation at its center now looks in the light of um, three recent developments. Um, I was going to call the first one post-truth politics, but as Robin has just pointed out, we should really call it untruthful politics. Um, so that'll be my, my first one. The second um, is perhaps a, 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 a maybe a less visible development, which is, uh, which is the development of um, post-electoral democracy. Um, I think we've seen some major failures of, uh, of democracy recently, but that doesn't of electoral democracy, that doesn't necessarily mean that all kinds of democracy have necessarily failed. Um, and the third is, was also, the idea was also introduced by Robin, um, the, the concept of the um, Anthropocene, uh, which is now receiving a, a, a great deal of attention amongst um, natural scientists um, concerned, with, envir concerned with, 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 the, with the environment in a variety of disciplines, um, and also um, increasingly in, uh, in, in, in the social disciplines too, social sciences and humanities. Okay, um, so let me start with uh, post-truth or untruthful politics um, as, symbol, as sort of exemplified, of course, by the, by the, by the, by the rise of um, Trump um, and, and, and associated populism. I mean, in many ways, um, uh, I can think of very few advantages of this, but one of the advantages for me is that if I now try to explain to people what do I do, um, I do deliberative democracy, and people ask me what it is. Well, it's the opposite to political communication of, of, the, of the Trump approach, in a nutshell. Um, what, uh, what untruthful, the rise of untruthful politics or post-truth politics suggests um, is that, uh, that um, perhaps um, human collective capacities uh, uh, are less inspiring than we previously thought. 
Um, again, Robin, Robin suggested that um, the project of ecological democracy was originally pursued against the background of liberal democracy, which seemed to be triumphant. And uh, we could think of deliberative democracy as well as ecological democracy as ways of um, somehow deepening and broadening existing democracies. Um, now, the, if, if existing electoral democracies, liberal electoral democracies are in retreat, which, which they are in, in today's world, um, then things, look at, things suddenly look a bit different. Um, so how, how do we now look at ecological democracy in that light? Um, perhaps, um, uh, I mean, my own, actually my own way of, of thinking about it would be to say, well, um, if human collective capacities um, seem less than previously than we previously thought when it comes to the practice of democracy, um, why should we downgrade non-human capacities in comparison? Uh, Non-humans actually now look somewhat better in comparative terms when compared, compared with what goes on in, in, human, uh, in, human, in human, existing human liberal democratic systems. Um, the title of my talk is Trees versus Trump, or the subtitle is Trees versus Trump. Um, what advantages do trees have when it comes to communication? Well, trees don't lie. They don't... <laughs> They, they don't try to destabilize science um, by, uh, by well-financed uh, uh, doubt. Um, they don't disseminate or believe fake news. They don't believe things that are manifestly false. So if we're looking for honesty in communication, then we're, we'd do much better listening to trees and listening to Trump. Um, uh, Peter Walben, in his recent <laughs> book, The Hidden Life of Trees, um, points out the subtle ways in which trees communicate with each other to their mutual advantage. So, um, so we humans shouldn't uh, regard ourselves as being the only, the only species which, um, uh, which, which can engage in meaningful, meaningful communication. Other species do it as well, not just um, animal species, but as Wallabin points out, um, uh, plants can do it as well. Um, he treats some um, forests as social networks. Trees can communicate dangers with each other. For example, acacia trees give off ethylene if giraffes start eating them, which warns other trees to start pumping toxins into the leaves to deter giraffes. So there are all, these are processes like this in the, in the non-human world. Um, communicative processes, and uh, we, we ought to be able to do a, a, a better job of, of, of listening to them. In the post-truth world, uh, we should try, we, we could perhaps try and achieve a new appreciation of the relative merits of human and non-human communication and agency. Um, okay, so that's, so in a way, post-truth politics is the big development. Um, perhaps um, less visible is the development of um, post-electoral democracy. And I notice uh, um, John Keane is in the room and he's, of course, uh, uh, written extensively about a particular kind of, um, of, of non-electoral democracy, which he calls monetary democracy. Um, there's a, I'm going to um, take a look at a, very, a somewhat different kind of post-electoral democracy, which um, has achieved a bit of interest um, uh, in, in the recent past. And that's, um, uh, uh, that, that's sortition, or the use of random selection in politics as an alternative to election. Um, I've long thought that, um, that, that sortition or random selection uh, could go particularly well with deliberative democracy because randomly selected citizens have some particular virtues uh, which elected politicians don't necessarily have in such large quantity. In particular, the, vir the virtue of being able to listen and reflect and change their minds if necessary, which elected politicians don't do. Um, so, uh, so, for example, there have been uh, proposals uh, made by, well, uh, the, the, mo the most radical proposals recently have been made in a, a, a book by um, uh, David Van Braybrook, um, in which uh, he... It, it's, he calls it the case for democracy, but it's the title of the book, the 
is actually against elections. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to um, suggest that we should completely replace elections with random selection, uh, but I think it would be interesting to, exper to experiment, for example, with an upper house that was randomly selected um, and would, you know, to, re to replace the, the Senate in Australia, in the, the, the US. I mean, it sounds like a utopian proposal, but it would bring a particular kind of set of virtues to, uh, uh, to politics which is currently lacking, which is the, uh, the ability to listen and reflect. Uh, the model there, of course, is a jury trial where we have a jury composed of randomly selected citizens. We charge them with some very, very important decisions. Um, why not do the same when it comes to um, houses of parliament? Um, now, I used to think that selecting executives by random selection would be a really bad idea. Um, now I'm not so sure. Um, think of, um, let, let, well, let's think of, think of Trump. Um, I mean, my own judgment is that, there's, that if you selected a president of the United States by random selection of a citizen of the United States, there's probably an 80 to 90% chance that that person would make a better president than Trump. Um, maybe there's a 50% chance they would be a good president. And we, I mean, who knows um, what, that, what the exact percentage would be. Um, I'd actually go further and say that there's a 100% chance that a randomly selected tree would make a better president than Trump. <laughs> For example, that tree right there, that would do extremely well. Um, I did think that then, but then, you know, that, that then, that then, but then there was a zero chance that they would be a good president. But that's only a zero chance from a human point of view, an anthropocentric point of view. Um, from the point of view of the trees, of other trees, um, that tree might make a, a really good president. Um, trees work on a different time scale uh, to, to humans. Um, we, yeah. So, anyway. Um, so, I think there, there are some virtues about thinking of democracy in, in different non-electoral directions, and that might involve the, um, the, the kinds of um, sort of civil society, social movement, uh, mobilization that, uh, that Robin alluded to. Um, finally, I'd like to take a quick look at the, the Anthropocene. Um, this is, as Robin pointed out, um, a new epoch, an, or an emerging epoch, um, in which humans are, affect the parameters of the Earth system and the way it works, the successor to the relative stability of the past 11,000 years or so of the, the Holocene. Um, and this, this really is a, a very different world that we're entering. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's recognized by a lot of scientists, and um, it, it's, it, it's had yet to have much sort of traction in the, in the, in the real world of, of, of politics. Um, I've argued that we really need to think about human institutions and uh, political institutions in particular and in terms of how appropriate existing institutions are when it, com when it comes to the anth Anthropocene. That our existing institutions, uh, uh, the liberal democratic governments, um, capitalist markets, you name it, um, emerge in the Holocene um, against, uh, against background conditions of, uh, of seeming stability in the Earth system. Well, things really, things really look a lot different if the system is now unstable as a result of um, human influence on it. Um, we can't assume that, that, that the Earth system is fixed and forgiving. Um, it, there's a new potential for, uh, for well, it's potentially ca catastrophic um, instability in, in the system. Um, and in a way, that means that non-human entities really do emerge as really serious players in human systems. Uh, we really can't ignore nature. Um, it, it won't just scream at us. Um, it, it, some, some really bad things can happen to us and the rest of nature as well as a result of uh, the kind of instability that um, humans have now introduced in, in the system. And, and climate change is really just the, 
It's really just the, the you know the first uh, the first foretaste of, of, of those possibilities. Um, what does this mean for democracy? Well, um, in conjunction with um, uh, Jonathan Pickering, who's one of the organisers of, uh, of the uh, Ecological Democracy Conference that we're part of these, these couple of days, um, we have a project on um, deliberating the Anthropocene, not managing it. Um, uh, I would argue that um, deliberation can be thought of as one point of leverage in disrupting the problematic path dependency of existing institutions which developed in the, in the, the Holocene um, which are so good at generating feedback which seems to reinforce their own necessity. So think of um, global financial institutions um, after uh, 2008. Um, that they, they, they managed to uh, position themselves as too big to fail. They generate feedback which seems to reinforce their own, own necessity. So we need to find ways of, um, of disrupting those sorts of, pos uh, those, those sorts of problematic um, path dependencies of institutions which seem very good at perpetuating themselves um, very poor at actually uh, confronting the challenges of the Anthropocene. Um, so overall, we need, um, we need uh, an enhanced uh, reflexivity in, uh, in, in all kinds of human institutions, and reflexi reflexivity there being understood is simply the capacity to sort of rethink and change themselves if necessary, to be something different rather than just do different things, like adopt better environmental policies. That may not be enough. Um, so that, um, I mean, in a way, that's sort of very idealistic. Um, it seems that um, the real world is moving in the opposite direction, but it doesn't mean it always has to move that way. Um, uh, so I conclude then that um, ecological democracy is actually more urgent than ever. Um, it's not something we should give up on, um, although clearly the fact that it's more urgent than ever doesn't mean that, that, that it will happen anytime soon. But, um, that, that, uh, but it's, it's always possible to think in terms of, well, uh, what particular moves can we make, uh, that, make uh, that, that move in the direction of a more deliberative and more ecological democracy, um, even if uh, the wholesale adopt adoption of this, this way of thinking about democracy is not going to happen anytime soon. Thank you for this intervention that makes my job very easy. Uh, so I will try to be forward-looking and outline what I think we need multiple ecological democracies to face the unprecedented challenges we have with manifold crises. So I will do that and point four also forward to some of the key challenges uh, that they are ahead of us in, in, uh, in uh, the age of Anthropocene. But I promise to make a kind of personal reflection how I came into the field of um, uh, ecological democracy and also I think because that has formed me coming from Sweden which has in the scholarly work of ecological democracy been seen as a beacon and a, of the green state Robin has written about that and how that has formed me. So I started my PhD actually in 1993 at the height of the liberal turn of green democracy with the optimism after the end of the Cold War. So one year after the Earth Summit and um, <coughs> where thousands of civil society activists participated and kind of the democratizing moment of global environmental politics. And I did my PhD on science and uh, environment and um, uh, environmental diplomacy and was kind of 
I think a child of that kind of progressive environmentalism, the hope of the 1990s, where the growth of ecological green democracy came, ecological citizenship, the whole participation and deliberative term. So I think, um, coming up as a closet liberal, but I, I've been a kind of green pragmatist liberal with recognizing, of course, all the problems of, of liberalism. Um, uh, so I'm also now, we are at the juncture where liberal democracy or green versions of democracy, we know that they have been blind to a question of race and gender, colonialism and domination of, of non-human creatures. So I think the field of ecological democracy has really expanded, deepened to include uh, non-human species, future generation, and to have uh, broadened the constituency or community to include ecosystem. So I think, and this workshop shows that uh, after one day we, we really ecological democracy, the scholarship have come to interrogate the relationship between nature and human, critiquing the hierarchies and dualism and, and trying to transcend them. Um, and I think this is reinforced that we have entered the Anthropocene, uh, even if that is debated, where humans are now transforming the planet at an unforeseen scale which raises these ethical problems. So, but I also want to say, uh, coming from Sweden, before I kind of do the forward-looking um, uh, reflection on where I think ecological democracy are heading, it's kind of ironic because in Sweden now, we have for the first time in 20 years a green political party in the government. Uh, and in a way, this, in all ways, this would look like the ultimate of kind of green democracy. So we have a coalition government with the Greens and Social Democrats. Sweden has declared, they did at the Paris COP, to be the strive to be the first fossil free welfare state in the world. And on the top of that, the state with a feminist foreign policy. So in the literature, Sweden has been heralded as this pioneer, this shining star of ecological green democracy. So it should be seen as the, the peak, but the paradox of this institutionalization of green uh, power, uh, uh, and uh, it has also meant a crisis, I would say, for green democracy. The Green Party now is at a low point in public opinion. Thousands of members are leaving and there has been close to a coup d'etat in the party and very disenchanted members. So the irony is that we have a kind of crisis in Sweden and I think part of it and the anti-immigrant populist party has three times as many voters as the Green Party. So in a way, paradoxically, we have this success of green democracy, green party reaching the government power and yet it's losing it. And I think some part uh, has to do with that the Green Party has lost kind of touch with its democratic ideas, participatory, grassroots, decentralized, and have had a more of a very techno-oriented, technological-oriented uh, 
and less participatory notion. But now, toward uh, the issue of the, the challenges for democracy, I think, as John Reisek has uh, written, part of democracy is to debate the meaning of democracy, and I think we need at this time ecological democracies in plural. Uh, in fact, uh, as Robin pointed out, there is this strong conflict in democracy, because green democracy hopes suggest that Collect, this collective decision-making, the procedures, will vote for stronger green outcomes. So there has been so much theorizing around how to resolve the conflict between guaranteeing with securing democratic procedures, yet having this open-ended process leading to strong environmental outcome. And I think we still, in green, uh, in ecological democracy, have this conflict between proceduralism and we try to evade it, well, try to escape it by having theories of uh, ecological citizenship that can transform our values toward the public good, good, by having a new culture of sustainability, by uh, uh, having another conversation. But still, when it falls down, I think it's very hard that democracy can uh, uh, generate green or sustainable outcomes. And I would say that the Anthropocene and Trump makes the question of ecological democracy even more pertinent in this large-scale planetary challenge we face. I would actually run to the democracy defense end because we need it more than ever when we are embarking on a road of transforming our societies toward um, uh, low-carbon, post-carbon, or fossil-free societies. So in this process, in this urgency, and the pace it must happen, I think uh, there will be a continued conflict between the procedural, uh, the, the, the importance to secure democratic processes, but still have these uh, uh, outcome. And I think also democracy is important in this transformative process through to low carbon society because we need to hold power to account in this. So I never, when I started my PhD studies, I was very skeptical to the echo authoritarian or the survivalist arguments that democracy is too slow to um, compromising to handle the crisis, let's centralize. We need to deal. We see a resurgence of eco-authoritarian thought, but I think that uh, we need democracy. The idea to put democracy on hold, as James Lovelock has argued, I think that is also um, quite rigorous empirical evidence that democracies are the best policies to, to combat. Climate crisis. Um, but now I want to be a bit uh, forward-looking here. I think actually to, to advance this notion that we need variants of multiple ecological democracies. So basically, probably there are four democracies. I, I would uh, point to four different versions of democracies we would need to in this large-scale transformation, uh, both bottom-up and top-down. 
We need ecological democracy in many sites, arenas, forms from the local, national, and transnational. So the first one is basically all the way up, or the one that now face, face, um, have a crisis, and that is the more liberal, eco-modernist views of democracy, where representative democracy, that it has meant the institutionalization of green parties, the idea of the to, to democratize the state, uh, decarbonize the state. But I think even if liberal and representative democracy is facing a crisis now, and I alluded to Sweden, I think still it has given us a lot. So this idea of the, the Robin talked about access to information, public trans uh, participation, transparency, a range of policy instruments, environmental impacts assessment, uh, that we need to um, still continue to, to democratize the institutions. Then we have what John uh, elaborated on, and this is a very um, impo uh, second important deliberate uh, democratic, ecological democracy democratic idea, and that's the deliberative version, uh, where we see a growth and peak in various deliberative innovations, both at the global level that I study, consensus conferences, citizen assemblies, stakeholder conferences. The whole idea is to have a public sphere with a reason and communicative rationality. And I think this is extremely important to have that public, the decline of the public is uh, very troublesome in Trump times. And to have a, a dialogue, a recent dialogue in various spaces. So the ideas of deliberative democracy is still, we need to hold on to that. Then we, the third one is of course the agonistic, the radical participatory democracy through protest, contestation outside the political institution. And we see this very much, um, I studied the climate change negotiations where we see the rise of the transnational climate justice movement with the slogan, system change, not, uh, not climate change. And that is an important site of democratization uh, with a climate justice movement. Fourth, um, and here at the workshop, some uh, very new ideas or new or ecological democracy as more the everyday practice outside policy government with the movements through of transition towns, alternative food movements, no growth, energy justice, political consumerism, a kind of individual and collective action um, uh, outside the formal institutions. So this activism, I think, is the fourth uh, kind of democracy that we need to mobilize. So all in all, and just now ending up with what I think of five, six, six, and that could be a way to kick off the debate here, we need to think very hard on, 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 on I think, uh, five, four maybe questions. First, um, and that has been an issue for ecological democratic thought, the idea of that we need to, uh, there are limits, there are plan planetary boundaries or tipping points that democracy should operate within. 
biophysical limits. So this brings the whole uh, idea with procedure versus outcomes to the forefront. So this is an important debate. Can we actually, are there actually physical limits that the democracy has to operate in? Secondly, I think we, especially in this populist post-truth or no-truth alternative facts matter, we need to zoom in on the role of knowledge, science and expertise. And this has been, among the Greens, there has been some ambivalence because there is a critique of technocracy, science as the universal, universal privileged knowledge at the expense of indigenous knowledge lay expertise, civic epistemology, and call for democratization. But in, in the age now we have with uh, climate denialism, uh, uh, alternative facts, we, for environmentalism, science and natural science can be, a, is an important ally um, to, to uh, 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 counter uh, the, um, the uh, explicitly false statements that are saying an interesting uh, the first thing Donald Trump does is on his webpage after his inauguration is to delete any reference to climate change. Uh, so I think science, the role of science is important. Third, the role of state. I think even if in Greek political thought there has been a skepticism which is well founded on the state. Uh, I think still the, the, the state is an important site in this transition to decarbonizing society. It is a primary actor, whether we like it or not. And the Paris Agreement really have reinforced that the state are a key actor in, uh, in outlining the uh, climate plans. And we need to, in, so we need to engage with the state. And then, um, also, fourth, and that is to reiterate what Robin said, the role of the environmental movements are, we are at a critical junction now where um, movements from the environmental mainstream justice movements, the animal rights movement, um, they need to build new alliances and um, in avoid what we say in club deliberation, that we only speak within our bubbles, but to a wider engagement and a wider dialogue of beyond humans and non-humans. And that's my final point, I promise this. I think we also need to engage as uh, green Democrats, green thinkers, on the role of the market capitalism. How to, um, um, how to, if possible, uh, have a deeper green economy. Some are very skeptical, they will say it's just greenwash. But transform capitalism. And yes, there is a discursive dominance of the neoliberal economy and market environmentalism. But capitalism has also provoked new social movements to transform the economy. We see now new, um, the sharing economy, just transition the social economy. So, in a way, uh, reform capitalism and uh, see it not only as an enemy to be abolished. So, I think I.